This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the bi-weekly podcast that takes a look at new and current films in the cinema and then looks at some tangential uh, titles that may be related to it in terms of genre or star or director or what have you. Uh, although today, I think we're doing all tangents on the Getting to Know You episode of Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook. And I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a writer for Local Express, amongst other things. Uh, and uh, Karsten, you have a resume of your own as well. I, I do, yes. I am a, uh, a media person myself with a variety of uh, <laughs> different hats that I wear. But, but for film, I have, a, uh, I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. It's at halifaxbloggers.ca, and I review films for CTV Morning Live. Now, we have done, I guess, 30-plus podcast since we started this a, l- a year and a half ago, almost two years ago. And it occurred to us that now we've got the swing of it down, uh, <laughs> that uh, it might be a good idea to introduce ourselves a little more fully to our listeners and talk a little bit about us as as film uh, cinephiles, as cineasts, as as lovers of movies, and uh, and what else we do with our lives, I guess, uh, but mostly about movies and and why I guess I guess hopefully uh, we you know the stuff we ramble on about is hopefully of some interest to you and and maybe maybe we are will be as well. So so uh, structurally, this is going to be a little different than our usual show. We're we're not going to talk about the newest movies. We're going to talk about a lot of old movies that really uh, that really impacted us and turned us into film lovers. Um, but I'm going to start by asking Stephen uh, a little bit about himself. Are you ready for my my question, Stephen? Sure, go for it. All right. So so tell me, where did you, where were you born? Where were you brought up? I am a native Haligonian. Uh, in fact, Dartmouthian to be specific, but uh, obviously born at the Grace Maternity Hospital back when that was a place uh, that uh, babies came into the world. So I'm a Grace baby, as they say, and uh, was born on Dartmouth Natal Day. Uh, August 7th, 1967. Uh, so I'm a Dartmouth doodle dandy. I like to think of myself as. <laughs> oh, man. And, uh, wow. And, uh, you put some thought into I this. I did put some thought into that. And, uh, and of course, uh, I think uh, next year, uh, it rolls back around to uh, my birthday uh, being the 150th uh, birthday of Canada and also myself. It falls once again on Dartmouth Natal Day, which is kind of, which only, you know, it's, it's the 7th. So it's like kind of late in the cycle. So. Uh, just, uh, just to prove to myself that it actually did happen that way back in 1967 on the hundredth uh, anniversary of confederation. So I, I, that's basically where I came into this world. Um, my dad worked for parks Canada and we moved around a little bit when I was a kid. Um, we moved to Ottawa for a few years, which is where I saw my very first film, which was the jungle book. And, uh, and after a few years, we moved to Calgary uh, where I had sort of my some of my my first drive-in experience, and uh, you know, seeing a lot of mostly Disney movies and that kind of thing, kids movies. And then uh, when I was still in grade two, we moved back to Halifax, and I've been here ever since. So that's that's the uh, the round trip uh, version of my uh, <laughs> my early voyage out west, and then back to Dartmouth, uh, where it all began. Now you talk a lot about the movies you saw when you were a kid, and especially the places you saw them. Did you have a favorite cinema in Halifax when you were growing up? Well. Uh, I mean, at some point I discovered Wormwood's Dog and Monkey Cinema. And of course, that became my favorite place to see movies. Because of course, uh, by the time we moved back, the the great movie palace, the Capitol Theater, uh, which used to sit at the bottom of Spring Garden Road, and 
was home to uh, live music, musical performances as well as movies. And it was like a, like a Gothic castle on the inside, lots of Tudor beams and even a suit of armor um, in the lobby and all that sort of thing. That was gone. They'd raised that by the time we moved back and they were building uh, Maritime Center, which is that uh, building that looks like an egg carton stuck on its side. The Bell the Bell Lion building. Exactly, yeah. 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 So, um, so I didn't get to go to the Capitol Theater. I was too young when we left. My parents used to go there on date night all the time uh, in the 60s before I was born. Um, and uh, so when we got back, it was mostly the suburban multiplex at Penhorn Cinemas. <laughs> uh, Penhorn Cinemas, initially I think a three cinema uh, thing and then they added a couple more screens uh, when they expanded the uh, the mall there, which is now no, which is now mostly parking lot. They've they've raised most of it. I think the Sears and the Sobies are all that remains. Uh, so that was kind of like you know you'd hop on the the fifty seven bus and and you'd go to to Penhorn to watch whatever uh, movie was playing at the time. Um, but I, I guess the big event screen when I was a kid would have been Scotia Square, um, you know, which is where all the big kind of Warner, Disney, Paramount titles would play um, in 70 millimeter. It was the only 70 millimeter projection screen in Halifax. And uh, so we'd see things like uh, the new James Bond film would open there and you'd see it on the, on the, on the big screen and, you know, a six channel uh, surround, uh, you know, discrete channel sound. And um, uh, let's see what else I, I remember seeing, you know, a lot of films I couldn't see there would be like the shining and alien, which I couldn't get into cause I was too young, but, uh, you know, I'd see the black hole there, for example, or, or, um, the latest pink Panther movie with Peter Sellers. I remember seeing a couple of those screened there. And, uh, you know, so that was always kind of like, you knew it was a big event, uh, to go to a movie at, at Scotia square, even though it was in a mall downtown Halifax, it, it was a huge room. Uh, you know, there's certainly when that closed, there was nothing that big in, in Park Lane or any other uh, multiplexes that popped up. Um, and, uh, and of course, Wormwoods was uh, Halifax's uh, repertory cinema, but, you know, which moved around to a few different locations before it finally went bust at some point in the, in the mid nineties or thereabouts. Um, and, uh, you know, that opened my eyes to a lot of things. Uh, and that grew, apparently that grew out of the, there was a Dalhousie film club that actually would show film prints in 16 millimeter and 35 millimeter, um, at various locations on campus, including the, the Rebecca Cohen auditorium, uh, where I actually saw like a, a film 35 millimeter print screening of Woodstock when I was in grade six. Whoa. <laughs> you know, so with the, 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 and it was, you know, they had, it was a huge room and of course they you know had all that multi-screen split screen stuff so that was kind of a kick to see at uh, the age of uh, i don't know 11 or so and wondering what that funny smell was as soon as the lights went down <laughs> um you know i guess they i guess they didn't patrol the aisles as uh, eagerly as they do these days at the cohen so uh you know th that was a pretty formative uh, experience but um but uh, as far as my earliest you know, experiences go, I, I can't even remember where I saw The Jungle Book in Ottawa. I would have been a downtown cinema of some sort. Right. Um, I would imagine. And uh, it was like the Elgin. I, I know Ottawa a little bit. And, and I, I spent a couple of, yeah, the Bytown, like a couple of those, those cinemas. Uh, there's one on Sunset. Uh, uh, um, anyway, yeah, but it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah, I, I spent a couple of years myself in Ottawa. In fact, we might have crossed over. Uh, it's funny that, though I suspect that no, you were there earlier. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I would have been like 68 to uh, 71 or right. thereabouts. Yeah. Uh, oh, no, Summer, Somerset is the name of that street. It suddenly occurred to me. Anyway, there's a cinema there. All The downtown cinemas, many of them are still open, which is which is great. Like the Bytown is a terrific cinema. Yeah, in fact, I think uh, I've been to the Bytown a couple of times because my uncle lives just around the corner from there when I, where I stay when I go up there. But um so, you know, it was a pretty, pretty normal movie going, uh, childhood, I guess, you know, yeah. getting taken 
you know, taken to the, the Disney movies and occasionally dumped at the, you know, the something that doesn't happen today where the parents just dump you at the movie theater and say, just stay here. We'll be back in a couple of hours. Right. They go off and do their shopping while you watch uh, the Fox and the Hound or, sure. uh, you know, the, the, the Black Cauldron or whatever. I, I got to think some, some parents still do that, but. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, uh, so at some point you chose to go to journalism school and, and become a, uh, 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 one of the province's premier arts journalists. How, how did that happen? Uh, well, I, I always had a fondness for writing. Even like if I go back, I find these journals and things that I had, even like in grade two in elementary school and, and that sort of thing where I would write, make up these stories and so on. And I even, I even wrote like a, a news report about when our house got broken into and somebody like broke into a basement window and stole a hundred bucks off dad's dresser or something like that. Like I even wrote about that. So, um, so clearly I had some sort of idea that I would be in some form of journalism from an early age. And I used to like imagine myself hosting a talk show at one point, uh, when I was quite young, actually, I even had like my fake stage name picked out and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, and eventually I did do that sort of thing when I, um, got my first professional gig, which is producing an entertainment kind of interview show, uh, on commercial radio when I worked at a local commercial station. So, um, you know, sometimes dreams do come true kids. So I, when, you know, when I was talking to the old high school guidance counselor and, and, you know, she actually said, well, you know, what do you want to do? You obviously like writing, you do really well, like English and history. And these are, you know, like. Sciences and math, maybe not your strong points. Although I did do pretty good in math, but but uh, you know, she said, well, you know, there is a journalism school right here in Halifax, and uh, at King's College. I'm like, oh, really? And and at that point, I'd actually been writing for um, a newspaper uh, called the the High School Profile, in which um, every high school in the region had kind of like a two page spread once a month, and. Um, you know, so, so every, you know, the QE would have their two pages and St. Pat's, neither of which are around anymore, uh, you know, would have their two page spread and even like Truro, uh, Cobbacoot Educational Center in Truro and, and so on, Parkview and, 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 um, Bridgewater all had like a two page spread that the, the local, each school had a committee of kids that would put together stories and take photos and all that kind of thing. So I started writing record reviews and I wrote a couple of movie reviews. And, what, what were and your first kind of, film movie reviews? The one that stands out in my mind is one of a film that was actually shot in Halifax called Siege. And uh, it was uh, the second feature by Salter Street Films, which is now DHX Media. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, uh, We spoke about it at some point, I guess, around our, our Nova Scotia yes, film podcast. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I got to see this film. Uh, and what I didn't realize at the time, but later figured out that it was actually an Atlantic Film Festival event. So I actually like went to the Atlantic Film Festival. I was still in high school. And, uh, it was, and that event was still kind of in its infancy. I don't know. It was like the second or third year, maybe, um, don't quote me on that, but it was early on in the, in the days of the Atlantic film festival. And so I went to this and this, I saw that siege was screening. Uh, I already knew about the film because some friends of mine, uh, had, uh, some roles as extras in the film where they were playing a bunch of punk rockers who steal a car because of course the film is set during a police strike. So early in the film, there's a shot of them pushing this car down the road or whatever um, after failing to start it or something like that shot on Bedford Row, as I remember, downtown Halifax. Um, so I was, oh, cool. This is the, the movie my friends are in. So I went to, went to see it. And uh, also in the film is a scene where, uh, you know, we're, I'm watching it. I'm in the old Wormwood Cinema, which was in the Kyber building. 
And so I'm in the theater, in the Kyber building, watching the film. And in the film, this bunch of vigilantes are going out to meet out some justice. And uh, in the movie, you watch them pull up in front of the Kyber building and come inside with their baseball bats and, you know, shotguns or whatever. So I'm in the, in the building that's being shown on the screen, watching the bad guys come into the building. And everybody kind of looks over at the door. To, but luckily in the film, they actually go downstairs into this non-existent basement because they're going to go threaten the denizens of a gay bar. <laughs> so everyone breathes a sigh of relief. But it was kind of funny, like being in sort of inside the movie when it's like the building you're in shows up on the screen. And, people, and you, you became a, a film lover ever since. It, Sounds it, pretty, pretty formative. Exactly. That, that it's a, the, the weird kind of fourth wall breaking event. And I wrote a, I wrote up a review of the film. I, I, uh, somebody had, uh, somebody at Salter Street later told me they actually found it in an old package of press clippings. Awesome. <laughs> somebody had either they'd found it or somebody had sent somebody's kid pulled it out of the profile or whatever. But that was kind of like my first film review. And I incorporated the fact that the movie kind of had this weird extra element based on the fact that the building I was in was in the movie. And, um, and that was kind of like the first thing. And then I wrote, you know, I wrote some record reviews and some other stuff. And I really enjoyed writing about the things that I liked, which were music and movies. Um, so when I got to journalism school, I got into Kings, got accepted, um, you know, did foundation year, the four-year uh, journalism program, and kind of steered myself towards, you know, arts and, and entertainment reporting. Uh, I did do hard news stuff, uh, covering government issues and that sort of thing. You know, you were, you were advised to be as well-rounded as you possibly could be. Um, but, uh, you know, when I graduated, I got this job basically doing what I wanted to do, uh, for a commercial radio station. And then that led to, uh, you know, more writing and freelancing, building a reputation and getting on at a, at a daily newspaper here in Halifax that, uh, at this, uh, at the point of this taping is currently, uh, has its uh, newsroom staff, including myself out on strike in its 11th month. So I'm not going to, uh, dignify them by saying their name, but, um, anyway, that's the paper of record, so to speak, Yes, where yes. I, I've year? been working since like the late seven, late seventies, late nineties, late nineties. Right. So you started late nineties. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's a, that's a hell of a career that you've carved out for yourself. <laughs> not too bad. Yeah. Um, so, so during that career, you've, uh, spoken to a lot of filmmakers, a lot of actors, been on sets, uh, you know, local films, obviously, but, uh, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about, uh, you know, interesting people you've spoken to and place, places you've been as a course of your, your duties as an arts reporter. Well, the very first time I ever visited a film set was for a TV movie set during the American revolution. And I, I don't know if it's for A&E, it was for or maybe the History Channel, one of the nascent cable channels at the time. It's called Mary Silman's War, about a a woman who it basically is kind of like a Laura Secord story, only in, instead of the War of eighteen twelve, it's the American Revolution, and you know she gets some secret news back to the revolutionaries so they can defeat the British. But it was all shot in Shelburne, and I went down to do a feature on on making this film about the American Revolution in Shelburne, and and that was my first time on a movie set, and I'd never you know, the, 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 the trailer with all the costumes and all the lighting gear. And it was, it was, you know, it was kind of an eye opener for me to, to, to see like all the things that went into the dynamics of making a film and all the coordination required. And, and, um, and I, that was actually a piece I did for uh, CBC radio it was a freelance piece that wasn't, uh, you know, so I was doing audio interviews and then cutting the tape together with the grease pencil and editing <laughs> Uh, uh, editing um, razor blade and all that stuff before digital editing came along and made that job a whole lot easier. Um, and that was kind of like my first taste of being on a, on a film set and actually seeing how these things get made. And that was, that was pretty eye opening. And um, you know, there's been a lot of sort of major films being shot 
in the region over the years. I mean, I never got to do a piece on Titanic. That was a pretty locked up tight uh, kind of film set as, as much as I tried to get on there. I really wanted to interview Gloria Stewart, who played uh, Old Rose at the end, at the, in sort of the bookend sequences of the of Titanic. Uh, and that never happened. And then she passed away not too long after that, which is a shame because, you know, I got to learn more about her career. Uh, as time went by, but I, I did get to go on the set of the shipping news and briefly chatted with Kevin Spacey, who uh, seemed to be enjoying his time in Halifax and, and was, you know, actually, you know, kind of like, you know, it was interesting to watch like a, an Oscar winning actor. Let's, let's not mince words, um, kind of working at his peak as it were, and just watch how he snapped in and out of character and was able, you know, there was none of this kind of, I have to go to my trailer and maintain the mood kind of thing. He would just zip in and out of this character, uh, this kind of you know, be laden with, uh, with, uh, whoa kind of man that he was playing. And then he would just, then as soon as the camera shut off, he'd be joking with the crew or some of the people who were working, who were, you know, sort of hovering around the set, watching the, the, the take happening. And, and, uh, you know, there was no prima donna behavior whatsoever. I, you know, I was kind of like, oh, what's Kevin Spacey going to be like in person? And, and, um, you know, it turned out to be very gracious and professional, you know, certainly, um, you know, not necessarily goofing around, but he, you know, was trying to keep things light, I guess. And, and, uh, my favorite, the detail that stands out the most in my mind was he had the, the little next to his chair, they had a little cooler, uh, and written on it was Val Kilmer. <laughs> <laughs> what? It, which is a, it wasn't like, was, was he up for this role or something? Like why, why, you know, in the, in the shipping news, like what's going, what's the joke there? And then, um, later I found out that he and Val Kilmer were actually like roommates that universe like when they're in whatever theater program they were in they're actually roommates wow. and they're old friends okay which is not something you'd expect but yeah but uh and and the, so there was some weird in joke where you know i don't think anyone mistake him for val kilmer but that was kind of you know i later discovered that they're actually old pals and, and there was some weird joke involved there and i so that at least got some of the meaning behind it so yeah i'm, I'm and i think the shipping news might be the biggest thing i was ever on the set for um but you know one of my favorite anecdotes was uh scotland pa the um kind of modern update of Macbeth. yeah with christopher walken yeah which was shot out in harriet's field out on the way to uh, crystal crescent out in near sambro area and they actually built or, you know, made a, took a building and made it look like a fast food restaurant. It was, it was basically Hamlet or Hamlet. It was Macbeth set in a fast food restaurant called Macbeth's instead of McDonald's. And, and uh, Christopher Walken is, I think he was, maybe he was McDuff. He was like investigating this murder that had happened that was committed by uh, Macbeth uh, and uh, his wife. Um, Maura Tierney played the wife um, from talk radio. And I think she was on, was on uh, Grey's Anatomy maybe, or one of the, yeah, or, yeah. I can't, ER, I can't remember. Yeah, I've Chicago seen her. Chicago Hope, one of those medical dramas. Recently, I've seen her in The Affair. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but a lot, yeah, worked a lot in, works a lot in television. And uh, she played Lady Macbeth. And um, and I'm blanking on the actor who played Macbeth all of a sudden, which is, you know, which is horrible because I talked to him. Um, <laughs> and he's, he's a guy I've enjoyed in, in other films. And for some reason, I'm blanking on his name right now. But but I, I didn't get to talk to Christopher Walken, but I did get to see him kind of in action. Like, because they, you know, the, with a lot of stars, when they're filming on a remote location or whatever, they, they get everything set up and wait, you know, at the very last minute, a minivan will pull up and out pops, you know, in this case, Mr. Walken, ready to do their take. And they'll, you know, They'll get in front of the camera, find their mark, do their take, maybe do the next setup. Then they get back in their minivan and they're whisked away back to their hotel room or wherever, maybe. Um, so, uh, you know, 
we weren't allowed, no one was allowed to talk to him, I guess. You know, he just goes straight from the van to like right in front of the camera where he's supposed to be doing his thing. But it was raining a little bit, it was a bit drizzly and somebody handed him an umbrella and he did a little bit of sort of singing in the rain. Nice. A little, like a little soft shoe. Yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, I already knew he was a dancer. I'd, mm-hmm. I'd seen the, the Fat Boy Slim video and I'd you know seen his scene in the uh, remake of uh, Pennies from Heaven with Steve Martin. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think I'd seen him uh, maybe do it on talk show or so. He did it on Saturday Night Live once. He did a big right. dance number to the tune of uh, Let's Face the Music and Dance. So I actually got to see Christopher Walken do this like little soft shoe. Amazing. <laughs> you know, while waiting waiting for the cameras to roll. And um and that was that was pretty funny. That so. is cool. So, so uh, you, any favorite interviews you've done, either on the phone or uh, in person? Uh, well, getting to talk to Terry Gilliam, and yeah. you talked to him too. So, but being yeah, that be, was a good day. Being a lifelong Python fan, you know, getting to talk to a Python, you know, especially because I didn't get to talk to uh, John Cleese when he was here or prior to his trip here, which is a, a real bummer. Yeah, he tried, but he just wasn't doing interviews. For what I guess because it sold out and he didn't need to promote it. Sure. Um, and I actually I did a phoner with Terry Jones once mm, regarding okay. one of his history series on right. the Crusades or something like that. Um, and that's the extent of my Monty Python interaction. But still, I mean, that's pretty uh, great. Gilliam is a favorite, given that you know he's made some amazing films outside of the realm of Python, like Brazil, which is a longtime favorite, and The Fisher uh, King, Fisher King, and uh, you know, is and, and certainly. Um, uh, his uh, Hunter S. Thompson movie, uh, yeah, in uh, Las Vegas is, is another uh, another treat. So you know, just uh, and you know that shared love of animation and and all that kind of stuff. So you know, the, in that brief fifteen minutes or whatever we were allotted, I tried to cover as much ground as possible. I don't think we talked too much about uh, Python stuff as such, but uh, considering I, I still remember seeing Monty Python for the first time as like a five or six year old in Calgary on CBC when they. They ran an episode to make up for a rained out ball game or something like that. And, and then I was hooked right from the get-go, which is the silliest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, so I've been a huge fan of that. So that was pretty great. And uh, I actually had a good interview with Mel Gibson. <laughs> so uh-huh, No kidding. Yeah. Um, what, was he, what was he promoting? I believe it was for payback of all okay, things. Yeah. Um, it was just a phone interview for payback. But, you know, he talked you know he was he talked to me at length about visiting nova scotia when he was scouting locations for um not the man without a face but uh there was that that movie where he was set in new england i think they ultimately filmed in maine or somewhere in new england but i think what about a guy who's recovering from some facial scars or something yeah yeah i think you might be right about the title or something similar something like that so you know he had these fond memories of driving around nova scotia and having as much salmon as possible and nice and all that kind of thing and and you know this is before he his life kind of went off the rails there so so it was you know kind of mel in a more mellow mood i guess than than what he later become known for but but you know as as a big fan of of certainly the mad max films and and uh some of the lethal weapon films and, and, uh, you know, some of his quirkier projects, um, uh, tequila sunrise. That is a great movie. And, and yeah, I like exactly. tequila sunrise so, a lot. And so, so that was a real treat and he, he, you know, he turned out to be really gracious and friendly, you know, unlike say Harrison Ford, <laughs> who'd proved to be just as grumpy and unresponsive as I'd been led to believe. He oh, you talked so. to him as well. Yeah. Well, of course he, he was in Halifax, uh, shooting K-19, the Widowmaker. Right. Um, uh, we only chatted over the phone, so uh, maybe not as big a deal as meeting him in person. But, but um, 
you know, he, he you know, and I was trying to ask some fairly pointed questions about, about the movie and his like growing up in the cold War era and trying to make it interesting. And he just wouldn't have any of it. Oh, too bad. <laughs> I'm know. sorry about that. <laughs> oh, well, it happens. Yeah. I still have a cassette of it somewhere to embarrass myself. Okay, Karsten, now the shoe is on the other foot. My turn to ask you a few things. And um, I guess uh, I'll just sort of follow your lead. And uh, now you, you know, your life has been spent in a lot more locations than mine has. So this may take a little while to answer. But what was your childhood like in terms of uh, the areas that you grew up in and and, uh, and how they differed in terms of uh, how film was perceived in those places? Yeah, well, my dad worked for the Canadian government in uh, the diplomatic corps, external affairs, as it was known. Uh, and I was born in Helsinki uh, a few years after you, uh, a 70-year kid. Um, and uh, my folks and I, my mother is Danish. My folks and I traveled around a great deal. We had a couple of years in Ottawa when I was a kid, but mostly, all right, so let me remember all the places. Uh, <laughs> South, Seoul, South Korea, uh, Pretoria, South Africa, uh, Tel Aviv, uh, Israel, uh, Baghdad, Iraq for a year. Um, and, um, and then finishing, uh, at least for me in London, my parents kept traveling and kept working, but, uh, I graduated high school in London in the UK. Uh, so, you know, movies were something I really enjoyed when I could see them. Uh, I remember Star Wars. I remember my dad taking me to Star Wars when I we lived in South Africa. So that might've been the first time I saw something in the cinema, but, uh, I do remember, films uh, on television. And I remember the fact that my parents didn't really mind whether I saw things that were aimed at adults. And I actually pointed that as one of the reasons I really love movies because I felt like I was seeing something that, you know, was over my head, but my folks were there. And so even if it was intense, like I remember being terrified by the Poseidon adventure, (laughs) but they were like, you know, they were there and they were okay with my seeing it. So I guess I should be okay with seeing it. And it was a family thing. It's something we did together. Yeah. Shelley Uh, Winters has that effect on people. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's a scary movie. I watched it again, not long ago. The the claustrophobia is, is, is palpable. So, uh, yeah. And my dad really loved like the action movies of the seventies. So especially Eastwood and Bronson and that kind of thing. So we watched those together. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, that's where my passion, I think for film came from, uh, and, you know, um, and seeing things that we were, the year we were in Iraq, uh, we watched movies. There wasn't a lot for the people to do, English-speaking people. Uh, the diplomatic corps kind of bound together there, the Brits and the Aussies and the Americans and the Canadians. Sure. And uh, the Brits would get films and project them on the side of the building of their embassy. And we'd sit and watch them. And once, I guess on Saturday nights, they would, and they would, you know, be projecting them. And they were the most recent hits, I guess, that they could get, uh, maybe a year old or something like that. So I saw a lot of things then I probably shouldn't have seen as a kid. But <laughs> but I remember, you know, distinctly having seen uh, an unmarried woman, for instance, which which is pretty heavy stuff for like a nine-year-old, which is what I would have been at the time. Uh, but really, you know, loving that experience, loving the communal aspect of watching movies and being included in that, despite the fact that I was a kid. Uh, and then uh, going to London when I was about 15 and uh, just, just taking advantage of everything that city had to offer in terms of music, going to see concerts, many of which I went on my own, which I, you know, my folks were cool with. So going, taking the tube up to uh, Wembley Arena to see concerts, uh, going to the Hammersmith Odeon and uh, – amazing musicians I saw at, at that age uh, through the mid-80s. Oh, like who? I got to ask. Oh, uh, okay. So, you know, <laughs> I was into metal, so I saw like, 
uh, and and hard rock. So I saw like Aerosmith and Rush and and uh, Deep Purple. Um, but then uh, I also was into blues. So I went to see John Lee Hooker and I went oh, to man. see uh, Santana. Uh, you know, and and uh, yeah, like I I uh, I was really kind of an awesome experience uh, just by virtue of the city and what it had to offer. Uh, and then movies as well, like going down to Piccadilly and uh, Leicester Square to oh, see so many see theaters. Films. Yeah, yeah, so many theaters, uh, and just plugging into a, a culture of cinema in a way. I had a, I took a film appreciation course in my senior year, and the guy who taught it was a film critic, and. Uh, he encouraged us to read like Time Out every week and read the reviews and just get a sense of of what people were talking about. And then he would get passes for things. So we would go see see previews of films that wow. he was going to see. So we saw um, Full Metal Jacket, Platoon, uh, Color of Money, uh, like and amazing stuff. And I, I remember also a friend and I went to our first film festival was in Brighton. So you take the train down to Brighton and we were there for a day and saw a bunch of films. That's where I first saw Lethal Weapon, speaking of Mel Gibson. <laughs> uh, and that was pretty formative as well. Uh, yeah, so, so and you know, I was open to pretty much anything. I, I You know, you're a sponge at that age. So, you know, there was a, there was a Scala cinema, which is up near King's Cross. I think it's a nightclub now. And, uh, and it would show like all night movies all night. So you'd go at 11 o'clock and there would be a, a loose theme, like comedy horror, uh, or very strange film festival. I remember seeing like early, um, David Lynch films, uh, short films and, uh, and, and Russ Meyer and that kind of thing. And you, they would screen them from 11 PM until 6 AM. Hmm. And, uh, there would be a lot of interesting things smoked in that space. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was really like, these are, are really great memories I had of of experiencing cinema, usually with a group of people, sometimes on my own. And uh, yeah, and really being into it and, and taking advantage of what the city sort of had to offer. Yeah, it's, I mean, it, it's it's a lot different growing up in a, in a town that has a film culture like that. And London certainly does, you know, and has the movie palaces of yore as well as the smaller independent cinemas. Um, uh, you know, like you mentioned the midnight movies and, and I mean, Halifax used to have a pretty strong midnight movie thing happening in the seventies and into the eighties, which of course I was never old enough to, to get into. So, you know, if you go back on the microfilm and there'd be like all night Kung Fu movie marathons at the casino theater on Gottagen street and, you know, midnight screening double features of the kids are all right. And rock and roll high school or, um, uh, you know, and just a Rocky Horror Picture Show and all that kind of stuff. Like there was a really vibrant culture and, and every theater kind of had its own vibe. So the casino was, we didn't, there never really had a grindhouse cinema, although the Cove, which uh, was the Eve, which was like a kind of a porno theater, is now the global TV headquarters on Gottagen. Um, you know, but that started out as a first run theater called the Vogue. And then it kind of got a little run down into the late sixties and they were began showing these weird edited prints of Ontario, you know, for Ontario edited porno films, Wow, which, you know, I never went to cause I certainly wasn't old enough, but you know, I remember having a friend with an older brother who, who told us about the experience of, you know, as soon as something interesting happens, all of a sudden half the screen goes black because the sensor took a Sharpie to, to, <laughs> to the film print and actually just physically like blacked out wow. the offending material. Amazing. Um, it, and it, it's pretty insane to think of what, I mean, you know, they didn't censor films in Nova Scotia, but you know, they did in Ontario and uh -huh. the, the distributor could only do what they could do with the prints right. that they had, I guess. Right. Um, you know, you could go to Montreal and see the same film completely untouched, apparently. Okay. Uh, so, um, <laughs> Funny that. But th those mid, you know, I'd, as a kid, I'm like eight or nine or whatever, looking at, you know, looking at the movie ads 
uh, and seeing the, you know, all night vampire hammer horror marathons happening at the Paramount or wherever. And, you know, even on, even like an all day planet of the apes marathon, which happened, unfortunately happened over Christmas and I wasn't allowed to go, or we went to St. John to my grandmother's house in New Brunswick or whatever. So, you know, there, there was a lot more happening, uh, in those days than in today's day of the multiplex, where it's just like the same eight movies playing in three corners of the city kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And, um, you know, I mean, at least we have Carbon Arc uh, doing stuff once a week. But yay, Carbon Arc! Yay, Carbon Arc! Yeah, and Thrillama, they do the and, genre and, films and, and Thrillama. But, yeah, um, you know, it's not like when there was seven nights a week at Wormwoods or what have you. Yeah, yeah. Well, so. yeah. So yeah, those those uh, those experiences were really formative. I'm glad I yeah. did that stuff. I don't know that I I necessarily. I mean, I'd, I'd love to see those kinds of things re- regain popularity, but I think our, our our films at home now probably take a lot of that. Uh, that energy uh, from the possibility of, of screening, having marathons, all night marathons, that oh, kind sure. of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I wound up going to Toronto to, for my first undergrad, which was fine arts at York and uh, getting into film there and eventually breaking into the film industry in the nineties, uh, worked for seven years or so on sets. Um, you know, uh, just basically being a gopher, a production assistant on a number of movies of the week. Um, and, uh, you know, see, as you noticed, you know, you, you spend some time, you start to see what everyone does and the, all the, the kind of, um, the kind of campaign that is required to get a film made. And, uh, and, you know, you get, it was a lot of work and a lot of it was, was really hard work and, uh, and, thankless work uh, as a production assistant, but you do inevitably you get some stories of, yes. of being on sets, people's bad behavior or things going on, meeting interesting people. Um, and, you know, and, and I didn't, I guess I worked on probably the biggest feature I worked on was X-Men. Uh, so I got to see, you know, all those sets and the, sh- the way Brian Singer made films, which was pretty interesting and pretty eye opening to me. And, and the fact that it was coherent at all was surprising because it just was <laughs> so huge. Yes. I feel like everyone who worked in film around that time in Toronto worked on that show because it just went on and on and on. Uh, but I also worked on much smaller films where I got to meet people like Naomi Watts before she was a big star. Uh, she was in a TV movie called the hunt for the unicorn killer where I was assisting the producer. Uh, I met, uh, James Earl Jones. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, a lot of really interesting Joanne Whaley. I met, uh, oh, wow. you know, really cool, cool actors, interesting people, and uh, really enjoyed just kind of being on set and seeing them do their thing. Forrest Whitaker on a, on a movie called Rebound about a, a basketball movie. Um, and uh, he also was someone who would go in and out and like, you know, he was very easy about being in front of the camera. Like he never made a big deal out of it. He was just, he was kind of a quiet guy, as you could probably imagine. Mm. Um, but it was never like this big transformation. He was very relaxed. Like there was none of those sort of actory kind of things that you might expect. Uh, I actually once saw uh, Meryl Streep act. Uh, I had to deliver a package to a film that she was working on on set, and I delayed. I just lingered <laughs> there because I'm like, oh, Meryl yeah, Streep, sure. I gotta see her her work. And she it was with um, Fred Ward, and it was one of her few TV movies she's ever done. It was in the '90s, and uh, it was great to see her and Fred Ward do a scene together. Um, so yeah, that was really, really cool. And, uh, but it, it eventually it decided that I, I wasn't scratching all the itches I wanted in terms of, of wanted to do with my life. And so I tried some other things and I, I, I took some other jobs and eventually finding my way out here to Halifax, uh, and going to Kings myself and getting a journalism degree in the one year program. And then, uh, 
And then, yeah, and then working at the coast and doing a lot of freelance writing for a variety of different uh, publications locally and nationally. And, uh, and, but still this passion for film uh, and the fact that I'd worked on film sets, I think, helped me sort of give me some credibility in terms of like knowing how all these things work. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then, and then writing about films and like yourself, uh, certainly enjoyed interviewing some people. I, yeah, I talked to Terry Gilliam, but, uh, but a few other people I spoke to when I worked at the coast and I was their film editor for a while. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe was really cool. He oh, was, wow. he was really, uh, charming. We were on the phone for, you know, 15 minutes or whatever our, the allotted time, uh, <laughs> as he was, he was, um, promoting the woman in black, his first post oh, Harry right. Potter, yes. uh, film, which was actually pretty great. So I, I was that quite happy to talk to him about that. Uh, and Ellen Page, uh, who, I uh, I really like chatting with. Uh, she reads the coast uh, online uh, every week from from uh, Hollywood when she's down there, and so uh, she basically warned me. She said if if we ever wrote anything bad about her, she'd come and find us. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I'm like, okay, lady, you just you know where we are. <laughs> um, I've seen hard candy. I'm not going to mess with. Yeah, her. I'm totally not going to mess with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually did wind up meeting her in person at one point. Uh, I was introduced to her, and I remember. It was shortly after having seen Hard Candy, and I found it quite intimidating. Uh, but uh, you know, that's that's the power of films. Uh, uh, yeah, and I think, but I think maybe my favorite conversation. Well, Mike Mills is a filmmaker whose new movie, Twentieth Century Women, is coming out. He was amazing. He his film Beginners was one of my favorites from oh, yes. recent years. I talked to him when that came out, and uh, John Sales was a really amazing moment, uh, just because. You know, in terms of independent film in America, that guy is is a giant. And uh, to get to talk to him, um, trying to remember the name of the feature that he had out at was the it time. Eureka, not Eureka. It was the one about was the one about Alaska. No, no, you're, yeah, I know which one you're thinking of, but it wasn't that. It was since then. It was mostly Spanish language, uh, and it oh, kind of came with and guns. went. No, no, it was since then too. Different yeah. Spanish <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, it, 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 yeah, and uh, and I'm you know, Lone Star is a favorite of mine. Um, and uh, it was just, yeah, it was a real thrill to talk to him uh, about his filmmaking. And I really wanted to ask him how he balances being an independent filmmaker with being a script doctor and writing like Jurassic Park 4. Like he had done a, <laughs> he'd done a pass on that script, which floated around Hollywood for many years before eventually Jurassic World got made. And I noticed his name wasn't on the Jurassic World screenplay. So I assume that either either it was an entirely different script or uh, it, I, I don't even know what happened with that story. I, I can't say I detected any sales. I didn't either. In that script. <laughs> I didn't either. Um, so maybe that's for the best, but yeah, he makes a living doing a lot of that kind of work and, and writing movie movies yeah. as opposed to the kind of things that he makes on his own. And uh, yeah, that, those were, um, those were real, real treats to talk <laughs> to those people. I, I, uh, uh, you know, and I still do from time to time. We'll do some some freelance writing uh, and talk about film. Uh, but uh, but yeah, the 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 time at the coast as an editor allowed me a more regular um, connection with those kinds of stories. So so I really enjoyed them. Yeah, sales is like they okay. We have characters that are supposed to be smart. We need someone who can make them sound smart, and they bring them into write dialogue for them or something. Like that. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I did interview John Woo once. Uh, oh yeah, you know, for a not very good film, it was just Paycheck with Ben Affleck. Uh, not a good movie, but we, I, as I recall, we didn't talk too much about that. We talked more about like old musicals and you know the the pressures of working in a, the Hong Kong film industry where they cut a lot of corners. And, right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, you know, kind of chintz out. On, you know, like. 
and music, you know, how he used that to his advantage and stuff like that. So, so that, that was a real treat. And then I got a Christmas card from him no <laughs> a way. few months later. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sweet. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and uh, you know, I kind of wish that things had gone a little better for him in North America, but yeah, he, I guess he continues to work. I guess he's been making these kind of epic films in mainland China or something like that, which I don't know if they're any good or not, but I, I feel like I should probably check them out at some point. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you. All right, so with our final segment, we're going to talk about films that have made us film lovers or that we return to over and over again. For me, my favorite movies, one of their requirements is that they have a certain rewatchability, that they create an atmosphere or a mood or evoke emotions in me that uh, that I, I love to go back to. Um, and that's not to say I don't admire films that are feel-bad movies or, or, or otherwise make you feel discomfited. But, uh, but yes, my favorite, I noticed that about my favorite movies all have that in common. They have a, um, uh, a something almost intangible that, that I, every time I go back, I either see them in a new way or, or they, they, they bring, back, bring me to, to some kind of emotional state that I, I can really, I really love. And uh, so, so, yeah, I, I, what, are, what are your favorite movies, uh, Stephen? <laughs> uh, go to it. <laughs> Jump right in. Well, yeah. uh, right, I mean, I, I have a favorite movie. And I think we, maybe this has come up before, but um, favorite movie of all time is The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. Yes. Um, directed by John Huston. Who is your favorite Humphrey director? Bogart. Well, John Huston. Yeah. Because yeah. number two is The Man Who Would Be King, which is same, sure. same director. Yeah. Similar you know, stories. 30 years later. Man, uh, men on adventures through. Uh, yeah. Searching through, for fortune in, yeah. in strange and dangerous lands. Yes. Uh, they're, they're pretty much the same movie. So maybe, <laughs> maybe they should be tied for first. Maybe having them at one and two is a little. Right. A little bit much, but, but there's something about both of those films and I've got original posters from both films on the wall at, uh, at my abode. Um, you know, they loom large for me and, you know, just something about, uh, Treasure of Sierra Madre is, is such an unusual film because it's a Hollywood film, but it was shot almost entirely on location. There, there's a few scenes where you can sort of tell they're in a studio on a soundstage, but for the most part, uh, Houston tried to shoot as much of it down in Mexico as he could. Um, away from prying interference of the studio. So it's a lot grimier than Hollywood films of the period. Um, there's, it's a lot more authentic in terms of its landscape and, and, and the extras and, and, uh, you know, the, the lighting is a lot, uh, you know, more harsh and, and, you know, there's a lot of things about shooting on location that I'm sure made things quite difficult that Houston probably relished, uh, having to work around all these problems and, and, you know, and it, brings out the best in, in the actors, uh, you know, Humphrey Bogart, uh, you know, who was a big star by the time that this movie was made, you know, from the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, um, plays this guy that you would, it's at the first of the film, you kind of like the guy. He's just a down on his luck, uh, American trying to find his fortune in New Mexico. And then just as the film progresses, he just grows more and more perversely obsessed with, uh, gold and becomes more paranoid towards, uh, his fellow prospectors played by Walter Houston, and, um, and, uh, Tim Holt, who's a kind of a star of B Westerns, who was kind of elevated to B 
be a pictures with this film. Um, and, uh, you know, people weren't used to seeing like a major star play a character that goes that dark by the end of the film. And then what happens to when he's ultimately beheaded by Mexican bandits, which I didn't realize until my like third or fourth viewing, when I realized what happened to him. Um, you know, it, it, if you watch what happens when he dies, um, you just... You, Gee, spoiler alert, dude. Well, <laughs> uh, 60 years. I yeah, think we can... I think it's fair. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um you know, uh, seven years, I guess, uh, at this point. But um, but uh, you know, the, you know, watch the film if you haven't seen it. Watch it if you have seen it. Watch it again, and when it, when when he gets his come up because it's it's an old movie. If you do bad, you die. I mean, that's, yes. that's how those films work. Um, uh, you know, like the one of the bandits pulls out a sword. You hear the sound of the whooshing blade, and then you just see this red or dark trail leading to a puddle or something. So basically they cut off his head and it rolls into a pond, uh, but they, they can't show that. Right. But the way Houston implies it. And like I said, I didn't catch that until the second or third time through. So, um, you know, it was amazing how much that film gets away with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember it being quite shocking how dark it was. Yeah. Uh, I, I confess I've only seen it one time. But I remember thinking, yeah, this is much more gritty, uh, more so than I necessarily would have associated with films of that era. Um, but I have seen uh, The Man Who Would Be King many times. In fact, I own it on uh, on Blu-ray, and it's one that uh, that I, I almost never tire going back to. Partly the charm of those two leads, they're both so good, and partly that great story, which, which – uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those things. I remember watching with a group of people and someone saying, saying uh, uh, one of the other people that was there saying, I liked it, but I don't know if, if I like them. And I'm like, I don't think you're necessarily supposed to. <laughs> no, not really. I think, I don't think you're supposed to. There's, there's a, I think the film has some things to say about a colonialism oh, and about the hubris of it and about... Um, you know, and about, and, and, you know, these characters, certainly, uh, it's, there's a lesson to be learned in this film, uh, that I, that I really, I really enjoyed and, uh, and surprising, it surprises you. I think you don't see it. You don't really see it coming. No. And, 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 you know, there's this thing about Kipling, you know, not aging well and that he comes from that age of empire and that some of his works kind of promote or, you know, talk up the British empire, what mm -hmm. have you. Um, this film, you know, this story clearly does not, um, you know, it shows the, the, the dangerous excesses of, of colonialism and empire building and taken to its ultimate degree in a way. And, uh, you know, so I love that he kind of perversely turns the whole Kipling myth on its, on its ear with this film. And, and it's interesting in Halifax, there's a, there's a Kipling connection in Halifax. I, I think he, I don't know if he corresponded with some people in Halifax, maybe in the service or something like that way back when. And uh, the Dow library actually has a huge collection of Kipling artifacts and memorabilia and first editions and things. So there's like an extra kind of local layer to it all here, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, is that is interesting. Um, yeah. I, I, I find that interesting too, that, that element of, uh, of, of Kipling's uh, reputation uh, and, and whether, and how, you know, with different kinds of eyes, you see things in different ways. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I, I would recommend the man who would be king to pretty much anybody. Uh, it also, I think it speaks to, and I, I, oh, I wanted to mention uh, Christopher Plummer. It's one of those films that yes. has a framing device and so few of these films with framing devices work, but this one works so well. The Christopher Plummer role is so essential to the element of the film feeling a little bit like a fairy tale, like a fairy tale that's gone bad. But, but the fact that he shows at the beginning and at the end 
brings it around in a way I think that is uh, is quite wonderful. And I I interviewed Christopher Plummer once. Oh, you did. Got to tell him that was. My second favorite movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I guess he couldn't hold it against me that Treasure of the Sierra Madre was my right, first. Right, right. But uh, that was a, that was a nice little icebreaker yeah. right there. Um, I guess, it, and just rounding out my my list, or at least my top five, anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, at three, I'm always it's it, it's always shifting. Um, but I know the, some of the permanent uh, residents of my my favorite movie list, uh, Pinocchio, the Disney Pinocchio. Uh-huh. It's just one of the most beautiful things. I've ever seen in a theater. And I saw that in an early age. And of course, Monstro the Whale terrified me as a kid and haunted my nightmares and all that. But it's just amazing to go back and look at the, it, it's, it's such an unusual Disney film because there's no princesses in it. Um, there's a blue fairy, I guess, but you know, it, it, it's kind of outside of that Disney framework established by Snow White and Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty. Um, and granted, not every, not all those early films do that, but I, I like the fact that it's a non-princess film. Uh, the whole Gothic Germanic look of it is so different than anything else Disney ever did. And the, the use of the multiplane camera is, is astonishing, you know, for its time. And it's just so rich and, and the animation is so fluid and, and detailed. It, it, it's, uh, and it, it is kind of like, you know, my first experience of a nightmare on the screen, basically, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. this dream coming to life, um, of a boy coming to life. And I've always, I just found that story endlessly fascinating. I, and I, I enjoy other versions of that story. Uh, I even have a really nice bound old copy of the original uh, book uh, by Collodi. Um, it's interesting. It's an Italian fairy tale, but they decided to render it in Germanic. Uh, <laughs> everything, every, every, everything in the film is Geppetto and right. Figaro. Everything's yeah. Italian, but it's German. The setting is German and everything's <laughs> Italian, I, uh-huh. which didn't occur to me until many, many years later. Um, also, Kurosawa's Ron. Oh, um, man, yeah. You know, which I, I've seen, I managed to see it in a big screen in 35 millimeter uh, on a number of occasions over the years. Um, you know, that, that one is a film I'll keep uh, returning to is uh-huh. an adaptation of King Lear. Uh, and you know, I, I assume most would argue it's not his greatest film. They would go to the seven samurai or Yojimbo or maybe, um, Ikaru for one of his more human. Kagamusha is popular. Kagamusha is a good one. Uh, Although I, I was mildly disappointed by Kagamusha because I expected more action or something. Right. From it. And I need to go back and rewatch it because it was, it was, it, it was one that I didn't hold up as well as some of the other films. Okay. Um, you know, or I, I saw it at a very early age and didn't understand all the ins and outs of feudal Japan. But, um, you know, but, but Ron was, it was, you know, full of life and zest and, and theater, you know, with the theatrical makeup and there was humor in it. There was a nod to Buster Keaton in there when he pulls out his sword and the blade flies off. That's a joke stolen right out of the general right. the B- Buster Keaton film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I can watch that and find new stuff in it over and over again. I guess, sure. I guess, uh, we're, we're quickly running out of oh, time. You so have one more. The same. One more. Uh, if I was going to pick one more, I would actually pick the general, the Buster Keaton. Okay. Film. There you I, go. I, the, the Buster Keaton is probably one of my favorite artists of all time uh-huh. and uh you know maybe you should rank higher in my my list but uh, but you know he, he's got so many films to choose from but i do pick the general it's a beautiful film very funny but also you know very evenly paced and it's not about gags per second uh-huh. you know it's the the civil war setting is beautifully rendered and it's it really it was a big step forward for comedy at the time even if people didn't quite realize it when it came out right yeah, I, I I admire your your picks. Many going back to the history of film, where where I tend to be a little more contemporary. Though I do love old movies, Casablanca, The Philadelphia Story. These these films, uh, uh, The Maltese Falcon. I'm I'm a big fan of of some of those. Uh, but yeah, it, it, my handful of of uh, let's say five that almost don't ever fall off the list, even <laughs> though it's a it's a very regularly shifting list of favorite films. Um, 
my favorite movie probably is Chinatown. Um, just, just by the, the, the deafness by which it's written and everything in the film works so well. Uh, there's a great sense of location, which I find is really important in films. The performances are terrific. The sense, the sense of dread, the way it builds to this conclusion, it's really dark and, and some may say kind of cynical, but boy, it's, it's compelling. And, uh, and that is a film I can, even though it's very bleak, I can watch again and again and just enjoy the, the machinations of the way the script uh, gets to where it's going and how we as an audience member sort of piece it together, this, this, this conspiracy. Um, I, love, I love that film. Um, obviously, Star Wars is, is really big, but I almost rarely put it on my list because it feels like bigger than movies. Star Wars is just like it's separate. It's on some kind of separate thing. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I saw it when it came out in 77 and at the casino theater. Uh, and that was like a, such a weird kick in the pants. For, like I'd never experienced that kind of excitement in a movie yeah, before. Yeah, it's crazy, uh, crazy it's, great. You know, now you go back and look at it and you see how it, it feels kind of dated and kind of clunky, but it's got so much energy and, and uh, spirit that yeah. you, you can overlook all that and stuff. And magic, magic, yeah. totally. Uh, yeah, so so I guess I have to include it. Um, sure. So beyond that, um, you know, my, my, my coming of age uh, as a as a, a film lover was was definitely in my teens and there were some movies that were really important to me at that time when I was living in the UK uh, a lot of British movies and I could mention a number of them that came out at the time probably Withnell and I was the most important <laughs> yes because it uh, it was so funny and and there was a, a louche kind of quality to these characters that I really could relate to or I, I believed I wanted to be like them uh, and uh, and the humor and the wit uh, yeah, there was something really timeless about it. And I watch it now and I still enjoy it probably for different reasons. But, uh, <laughs> but at the time I, I remember stepping out of the cinema, I saw it at a Baker street cinema in London and at an independent cinema. And I walked out and I just felt like I was living in the movie. You know, I had been to places that it was shot, uh, in Regent's park, outside of Regent's park zoo, like there were scenes shot there and, and Camden town and so on. So, uh, so I, I really, I love with and I, uh, and I still love it. Um, and I really love spy movies. So I, I love all spy movies. To, I go to town with them. And the one that I think I go back to probably the most is is The Russia House. Um, sure. Fred, Fred Skepeasy film. Uh, Tom Stoppard adapting the Jean Le Carré novel. Uh, an amazing film. Great locations. Great intrigue. Uh, really well structured. A beautiful film too. Beautiful film to look at. Um, so uh, yeah. And then... Well, if I had to choose one more, I want to get something a little more contemporary, something more recent. Um, what is a movie I've really loved recently? Like, I'm totally seeing my pants <laughs> here now. Um, you know what I would say? A film that I've really loved in the last, I don't know, 15 years is probably, I really loved Lost in Translation. Um, yeah, I really love uh, Sofia Coppola, what she does with that film. She creates a, uh, a mood of a feeling of alienation that I find is really hard to put your finger on, but she's so good at doing it through the experiences of these, of the two lead characters and their experience with one another. Um, just a longing that is never quite uh, satisfied, uh, a feeling of, of being lost in, in the world, lost in a, in a culture, um, you know, and, and, uh, and, and it, it's, it's something that, uh, I mean, I think the film has problems in some ways, but but that feeling of longing, I think she does so well, and I I uh, I, I really related to it.
Well, that's been our getting to know you, getting to know all about you episode of <laughs> Lends Me Your Ears. Ah, uh, gotta love the king and I. Um, and uh, that wasn't on your list, though, man. No, no, but it's it's got a Halifax connection in uh, Anna Lee and Owen, so there you go. There you go. I'll yeah. Throw it in for a little um, honorary mention. Um, my name's Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And you can also send us emails at Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I have a Twitter account. Uh, the address is at NS underscore S C O O K E. And I have a Twitter account for my blog, and it's at Flaw in the Iris. And if you want to send us some uh, coinage, you can do so on our Patreon. And of course, thanks to CKDU for the use of your recording facilities and the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.